BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, good morning and welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and we made it to Friday. Today is February 19th and it is also National Vet Girls Rise Day. It honors the nearly 2 million U.S. veteran women who serve in our armed forces. Uh, the National Vet Girls Rise Day also builds resources and spreads awareness for the needs of our female veterans. Take a look at this charity if you want to support veterans, but also women in the military who are serving as well. And joining me, we're going to go straight into it, is a congressman from North Carolina. His name is Ted Budd. He's a Republican, and he is a member of the House Financial Services Committee. And yesterday, the committee held a hearing on the GameStop scandal. You probably heard the stock price shot up, and Democrats like uh, AOC, they wanted blood. And so there was a committee hearing yesterday. They had the head of Reddit, the head of Robinhood, which was the trading app that allowed this to happen, and also some hedge fund CEOs. They testified at a House hearing about what happened with GameStop. And the committee chairwoman, Maxine Waters, said this will be the first in a series of hearings to examine market volatility related to the GameStop episode. She said many Americans feel that the system is stacked against them, and no matter what, Wall Street always wins. In this instance, many retail investors appeared motivated by a desire to beat Wall Street at its own game. And, Congressman, you put out a tweet. You said, bottom line, this was before the hearing, while Democrats rush to regulate, Republicans want to get the facts what did you mean by that, and what facts did you get? Well, that's what we always look for. It doesn't matter what the instance is. Uh, they have their pre-built narratives, and we just want to know what actually happened. Uh, there's a tendency, especially for the left, for the Democrats, to want to regulate something and have more government control. We just want to know what actually happened. Um, and what I came away with uh, was that uh, Democrats think that retail investors are dumb money, and I think that's really insulting. What we saw with uh, Reddit, what we saw with uh, the users of Robinhood, is that retail investors are really smart, um, and uh, they're a force to be reckoned with. And it's not just Wall Street uh, that's in control. It's also the retail investors. We just want to level the playing field. You know, there's really just a couple things that I wanted to see yesterday. And, and I want to ensure that we have open markets for all investors. I want to support innovation in the financial services industry. You know, see things like blockchain, faster transaction times. And, and I want to increase, in, see increased uh, market access for everybody. And I want to level the playing field. So I was encouraged to see the strength of the retail investor yesterday. Well, it's interesting you mentioned this because one of the people who was forced to testify went on Reddit by the username Roaring Kitty. And it turns that wasn't out. That was his only name. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. There's another name that I cannot mention on the air. You can Google it yourself, folks. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to get pulled off the air. But this guy, his name's Keith Gill. 
and he was one of the most influential voices that pushed the GameStop stock, and he's been hit with a lawsuit that accuses him of misrepresenting himself as an amateur investor and profiting by artificially inflating the price of the stock. This guy, Keith Gill, it turns out he has a CFA, and I used to work at Goldman Sachs, and I used to work at Moody's. A CFA is hard to get. Let me tell you, it's a chartered financial analyst. The textbooks, in some cases, it's like you're at least getting a master's degree or maybe a PhD in finance. This guy was not your average retail investor. Do you think this lawsuit, do you agree with it? Well, I think anything that starts with, I'm not a cat, and that was his <laughs> opening part of his testimony. I think that's going to get some attention. Sure. I'm not really sure about those charges specifically, and that wasn't, uh, you know, I don't think that we should be judge and jury in Congress, but I think we should get facts on the table. Um, so I'll just have to let that play out, um, you know, for the investigation. I don't think so. He is a retail investor. He said that, uh, that you know, he was a CFA. But at the time, you know, he was not giving when he was involved in the markets years ago as, I guess, a Series 7. He wasn't, um, you know, giving advice. So he was acting as an independent player. Yeah, he's smart, but he had access to uh, everything else that they're, you know, on Reddit that other users did. And, you know, it's the cat videos that go viral. Um, and in this case, it was AMC stocks and it was, um, uh, you know, it was it was it was financials that went viral. Uh, so I just think we saw the retail investors at amazing strength, and it's not just Wall Street that's in control here. Mm. I want to ask you about conservatives and financial services. So we saw some conservatives have recently called for PayPal to be boycotted after the CEO of PayPal said that the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, is a resource for them to help ban users. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center is very controversial for conservatives. There's a lot of evidence to say that this group, the SPLC, targets conservatives, that it targets Christians in particular, and labels Christian groups as hate groups or extremists because of their religious views. Do you agree with conservatives here to say, PayPal, don't use this? And do you think that conservatives are being targeted by financial firms? And could this be the new frontier of cancel culture? You know, cancel culture is a huge problem right now. The real problem is that we're seeing that fact checkers, and I would use SPLC as one of the fact checkers, and they're not checking facts. They're pushing their leftist agenda. Um, and people think, well, if somebody's checking the facts for me, I'll certainly use that, whether they're checking uh, up on a presidential debate. But right now, uh, we're just seeing that fact checkers or people who use that title, like SPLC, are just pushing a leftist agenda. So I would encourage PayPal not to use them and to come up with their own agenda that represents the whole of America, not just, um, not just the extreme left. Mm. And have you seen in your role there on the House Financial Services Committee other financial institutions who might use fact checkers, fact checkers, I put in quotes, facts, uh, the SPLC or some of these other fact checkers? Are you seeing other possible financial institutions feeling pressure? I think all of them are feeling pressure right now. Um, and they got to realize who they're, just as we in elected office have to realize who our constituency is. For me, it's about 750,000 people across 10 counties in North Carolina. They have to realize who their uh, their constituents are, and that's depositors, that's real men and women going to work every day out there. And it's not just what we would consider the woke left that not only want to push government agendas to the left, they want to push corporate agendas to the left. They want to be involved in uh, proxy recommendations and uh, uh, board recommendations at every level of companies. I mean, it's just the next frontier uh, for the radical left. So I would encourage the leaders and companies to step up, be their own leaders, 
and realize that they need to represent all of America. Mm, we're also seeing U.S. banks and financial institutions seeing pressure to uh, sever their ties with the gun industry. Are you seeing this? I know you have a gun shop. I do. I'm a federally, I mean, remember, I'm federally licensed as a firearms dealer, and I'm not the only one in Congress. It's a small business, a lot like other businesses. Uh, we have to maintain huge compliance and realize that this is woven into our Constitution in the Second Amendment. And they're isolating away people that are involved in a constitutional business. Mm -hmm. All right, Congressman Ted Budd, we appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be right back with the editor of Human Events. Stay tuned. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you're with us. Well, joining us from around the world in Kuala Lumpur is the managing editor of Human Events, Ian Chong. Good morning, Ian. So, Ian, let's talk about the latest headline at Human Events. And this is a tongue twister. I'm going to say this and try to say it right the first time. Feds mm -hmm. freeze out frost fix for southern states. And the question yep. being asked by Henry Miller, your colleague, is why is the EPA impeding technological innovations that could save American farmers billions? What is he talking about? Um, I have to admit that I didn't edit that piece, although I know it's a good piece. So <laughs> <laughs> I recommend reading it. It's about it's about what's happening in Texas, right? the gist of it. I understand the gist of it. Um, it's about what's happening in Texas and how the EPA has more or less caused this situation to happen, right? And it's not, you know, like it's so easy to blame Republicans and say, oh, it's because they're deregulating the power system. That's why, you know, all the uh, the power outages are happening. No, it's not as simple as that. We wish it was, right? The the left, the Democrats, they wish it was that easy because, you know, when, whenever something like this happens in, say, California, no one uh, looks to point at the, uh, you know, just the Democrats, right? They, they always talk about the big picture. Oh, it's because of Trump regulations here and Reagan regulations there. And, uh, you know, it's 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 just as complicated as it is anywhere else. And it's, you know, no less complicated in Texas. So, you know, I recommend reading it. You know, the, the article's quite, uh, uh, I've read it, but it's, it's, it's quite hard for me to explain and just go over it like that. <laughs> well, we won't blame you for that headline, uh, that mouthful of a headline. All right, let's talk about another one from Human Events. And it talks about race. It says, brace yourself for four more years of racial divisiveness. This is by Alexander Zubidov. And he says, President Biden, the quote, great uniter, stokes the fires of identitarian tribalism. Ian, I know you have strong thoughts about this question of melting pot or mixing bowl. This seems like such an old, I, I remember hearing about it in elementary school civics, that America, the destiny of America, should it be one of melting pot, where you have many cultures, many languages, many races, and it's all coming together as one e pluribus unum, or should it be really based on who you are, slicing people up by their gender, by their race, by their whatever identity they want to put on there? How can a country move forward if it's so divided? 
Exactly, right? And and this is something that has been laid at the feet of President Donald Trump previously, and quite unfairly, I should say. You know, people uh, said that he was voted in because of racism, because of racists. No, that's not true. I mean, he certainly he does represent a demographic, white people, and there's something wrong with that, right? We have to admit that, okay, some people like representation. Everybody calls for representation, and yet somehow when it comes to white people, uh, it's like, oh, let's just disregard them because white people are trash. That That's the response that you'll usually get on, say, on social media, even on the news sometimes. You know, they, they will just go on about how white people, white people are bad. And, you know, for all that Biden is saying, he talks about being the great uniter, how he wants unity between left and right. Uh, it's just not happening. All he's doing is stoking the flames of division, right? He is talking about critical race theory and, uh, you know, equity, you know, whatever that means, because equity has a very different definition from what it actually sounds like. What it means is that, you know, they take away from one group to give to another perceived group. But in reality, you know, the, the poor, the impoverished, whom they're supposed to be helping are not seeing any of that help. It, all it does is it lands in the coffers of uh, the lobbyists, right? Green energy lobbyists, for example, um, or in this case, social justice lobbyists. You have people who get paid millions of dollars uh, to, you know, run some college course and teach other people how to hate based on skin color and gender. And that is that there's nothing unifying about that. And for all the all the flack that Donald Trump received for dividing people, he wasn't actually the one stoking it. Biden, on the other hand, is actively doing that. You can see that with all of his policy, his administration, uh, administration's policies that are happening right now. I mean, like most recently would be the transgender uh, 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 unbanning, right? Uh, rather, he wants to ban any college or federal institution that doesn't allow uh, trans players to participate in women's sports, for example. I mean, what does this do to women's, uh, like women's sports in general? Well, I, well I don't it's think sort of like trying to have your it. cake and eat it too. I, I, I don't understand when the left, they say that gender is just an identity or it's just a construct, that it's something that's a man-made construct on a spectrum, that gender is something that you can choose, pick and choose. But then uh, the other, on the other side, they then want to say that they're fighting for, for women's rights. And I don't understand how you can say you're pro-women's rights if you believe that women is just a construct that's something that's made up. So I, I don't understand how they're trying to have it both ways. This doesn't make sense to me. I also think it's interesting, uh, you know, the Asian American population, they out-earn white Americans. And they also get more education than white Americans. It's a minority in America that is outperforming white Americans across the board. And we don't hear about this in terms of life choices and behavioral choices. I, I, I went to a school where, in middle school, where it was about 95, 96% black. I was one of the only white kids there. And I remember people saying, oh, why are you friends with the white girl to my black friends? And this idea of acting white, that if they were my friend, they were somehow acting white and yet they're being persecuted because of quote unquote acting white when uh, we talk about white privilege. So it's like, okay, let's make, yep. if, it's, if it's choices and behavioral choices of acting white, yet you wanna say then it's then privilege, but you're gonna hammer someone because they're acting white because they're making choices that maybe, maybe they're choices that you disagree with, but they're choices that are making them have a better life outcome. Uh, but we also see it with uh, Asian Americans have an even better uh, life outcome than white Americans. Why, why is there so much focus on labeling people rather than saying there are choices that people make and those choices are the outcomes happen regardless of the race? 
Well, that's easy. I think it's because people want to evade personal responsibility. You know, when you see that your life is not so good or that, you know, things could be better, but you don't really want to do anything about it. Well, what do you do? You blame external uh, sources for your predicament, right? You'll say that, well, the reason I'm poor is or the reason I don't have a job is not because I don't want to work but because I have been put in this situation where I'm unable to get work. So it's it's a form of an excuse. So it is a, it's very much an excuse. And you know it, you can look at the mentality of the people saying these things. You, you might even find them on reality TV shows, like say Hell's Kitchen, for example. I was watching an episode recently where all a woman did, and she was a really bad chef, all she did was blame the other contestants. She was blaming the situation. She was blaming the meat. She was blaming the utensils. It's exactly like that, right? You take you take that mentality and you apply it into uh, you know through the lens of gender, through the lens of critical theory, and suddenly everything you know is to blame. Like white people are to blame for everything, right? Colonialism's to blame for everything. Pa- the patriarchy is to blame for everything. It's like there's always an answer. Why am I not you know getting paid more than my male colleagues? Or you know, uh, oh, it's because uh, they're men and they have male privilege. You know that that that's the the, the number one thing that comes to mind. Now, granted. You know, inequalities do exist. They do happen. But, you know, when when we're talking system-wide inequalities, systemic inequalities, I don't think so. Right? There's no proof that that actually exists, because if that were true, then white people would be the top earners, and yet they're not. So, well, that, 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 you know, the and, uh, that and if, if, if women were getting paid so much less, there would only be women-led firms, and they would be hugely profitable. They would just hire women. If you could pay a woman, yep. you know, 20 cents or 40 cents on the dollar, why would you ever hire a man? Because women are cheaper. But you know what? Exactly. That's not reality. All right, Ian, stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk more about one of your favorite people, uh, the New York governor, Governor Cuomo. I'm sure you love him. All right. I love him. Okay. All right. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad that you're with us. Well, Section 230 is a huge issue. It's something that conservatives have a lot to say, and joining me is the former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Al Sykes. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Carrie. So let's talk about exactly what is Section 230, break it down. Why do conservatives feel so upset about it? Well, I mean, 230 provides immunity to so-called neutral providers. That is the assumption, the neutrality of the provider. And, uh, and the immunity is, is quite broad. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the removal of certain conservative speakers, most notably uh, Donald Trump from Twitter, is probably what ignited uh, much of the current controversy. Well, and, and Trump, even before he was banned, had been saying this for years, that he was concerned about this. Uh, Twitter just suspended somebody else, Paul Sperry, who's a journalist, and he, he came out. We have a headline here that we covered at Just the News. Paul Sperry said they can silence anybody. 
and Twitter says they have permanently banned him. They gave no warning, and they didn't say specifically which broken rules that uh, he broke, according to Sperry. So I want to ask you, because the platform, as I understand it, under Section 230, if you have protections under Section 230, you are supposed to be neutral. You're not supposed to be regulating. You're not supposed to be cutting off someone like Paul Sperry or Donald Trump or whomever. If you're a neutral platform, are you supposed to be neutral and not make editorial judgments? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I you know I could go on and on about this. Uh, you know, there there are um, rules, Facebook rules, Twitter rules. You can read them, uh, but everything is open to interpretation. So when I was taking on Howard Stern at the FCC, the question was, uh, you know, what is indecent broadcasting? And uh, they had a lot of gobbledygook about, you know, excretory organs and sexual this and sexual that. And it was very difficult to interpret. So my simple point here would be we need simple rules. We need transparency and underscore we need neutrality. Right. So you were successful in getting him off the air. Um, you know, there was lots of controversy, as you mentioned, with Howard Stern. You were successful moving him from the mainstream waves over into satellite because, at least, correct me if I'm wrong, the argument is that this is a media company. And what Trump and others have said is that these tech companies want to pretend they're not media companies but in actuality, they are. Do you think that Facebook and Twitter and these companies, these tech companies, are media companies? And do you think they should be treated as such in the same way that you were able to get uh, Howard Stern off the air? Yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, we got uh, Howard Stern's employer fined three times, which resulted in Stern, as you noted, going into a pay tier of satellite radio. But yeah, no, I think that uh, as the uh, big tech companies, or for that matter, small tech companies, choose to take people off the air because of their points of view, they do become publishers. And of course, the uh, Section 230 says they are not publishers, uh, but uh, I think they are right on the edge of being considered publishers. Uh, but I, I know I see you on Twitter, and I see... Uh, you know, ben Shapiro on Twitter and other conservatives, Brit Hume, you know, I follow on Twitter. So I don't know where they're stopping and starting, uh, but that, again, needs to be simply stated and easily understood. Well, and Democrats have brought forth a bill. Uh, the Verge reported about it, uh, which covers the tech industry. And Democrats are taking their first stab at reforming Section 230. It's called the Safe Tech Act, and it's their first big content moderation bill following the deadly attacks on the Capitol in January. And shortly after the riot, uh, conservatives were targeted, and Parler, the uh, conservative platform, was removed by Amazon Web Services. And uh, we know uh, there was a criticism from MIT Technology Review, and the headline there is that how a Democratic plan to reform Section 230 could backfire. And what this MIT Technology Review argument is, is that critics are concerned that the larger companies will simply start filtering out many kinds of legitimate speech to avoid lawsuits, and that the changes aimed at advertising will potentially harm anyone providing paid services, such as web hosting companies or email providers. What do you think about this MIT Technology Review um, argument here? 
Well, when they begin to uh, uh, you know, filter out uh, conservative uh, points of view, they become publishers, and therefore, in my view, and I am an attorney, I would sue them on the basis that they ceased to be the kind of uh, provider that uh, Section 230 envisioned. They become publishers, and therefore, they should be held for liability or should be held to you know, the same sort of liability criteria that publishers are held to. So what advice would you give to Democrats? Because right now they're holding both the House and the Senate. You've said simple. What in particular do you think that the technology companies should not be allowed to have this broad, uh, you know, editorial making decisions? Uh, and if so, if you don't think they should, should they then uh, be treated as the, this network, for example, we're a media company. Yes, I think that's right. And what my first advice would be to the Democrats is that this is going to need to be a bipartisan uh, approach. Uh, John Thune, for example, uh, Republican senator, uh, has some very thoughtful uh, uh, insights on this. And I think John should be involved and, and a number of others. Uh, this should be done on a bipartisan basis. But absolutely, you know, when, when neutrality is dropped, then they need to be, meaning the tech companies need to be treated as publishers. Mm. So what do you think conservatives can do to fight back? Do you think, I, I had Grover Norquist, who's with Americans for Tax Reform on my program, and he said that uh, at the time, it was still when Trump was president, and he said, you know, it, it's like Dorothy already has the red slippers on. You don't actually need new changes. He said under current law under current Section 230, he believes that the companies are already in violation, that you don't even actually need to change uh, anything. What do you think about that? I agree. I mean, I, you know, first of all, as you begin to work uh, on Section 230, you, you run some risk of getting the government involved in determining whether speech is political or not, which, of course, is a, a violation of the First Amendment. So it's an exceedingly tricky area for the government uh, to become involved. So I, on balance, like Section 230, and I do believe that it was an accelerant in terms of making the internet. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, the quote unquote big tech can't have it both ways. Uh, I also note that Parler has uh, beginning to put back together the underlying infrastructure to be back on and to be expansive. And uh, to some degree, I think that uh, that's going to be sort of the countervailing, uh, you know, business-based uh, uh, initiative that will be overall helpful and might take a little bit of this off the front burner. But keep in mind this, when the First Amendment was conceived, we were dealing with, with letters on, uh, well, we were beyond parchment, but, and now what we have is we have, uh, well, let's go back to Disney. I mean, Disney said, old animation doesn't work uh, you know, compared to Pixar, and so they acquired Pixar. Uh, goodness knows what generation Adobe is in on the Photoshop, and goodness knows what generation we're in in terms of being able to target mm -hmm. uh, the advertising. Everything's changing. The only thing constant is change. Thank you so much, Al Sex. We appreciate it. All right, we'll be right back. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. 
With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you're with us. Well, Governor Cuomo is in hot water right now. The news just keeps coming out. The latest, Ian Miles Chong, our friend over at Human Events, tweeted this out. Leaked audio reveals the Governor Cuomo admits that the COVID-19 lockdowns are a, quote, fear-driven response. So you can hear Cuomo himself saying this, that the shutdowns are driven by fear. And we also know that the FBI and federal prosecutors, as we're reporting here at Just the News, are investigating Cuomo and his administration's handling of nursing home deaths. A Cuomo spokesperson, Richard Azopodardi, did not divulge if anyone from the governor's administration had been interviewed or subpoenaed. And as the DOJ has publicly stated, uh, the DOJ says that he's been cooperating, that they are working together with the DOJ, and they've been looking into this for months. The other news here is that a New York State Assembly, the GOP, the legislature there, is forming a commission on impeaching Cuomo. And joining me to discuss this is Derek Gibson. He's a candidate for governor of New York. Hey there, Derek. Good morning, Karen. How are you? Doing well. So this impeachment commission, so this is Republicans. Republicans are in the minority in New York. So is this actually going to go anywhere? That's correct. And we can only hope that it goes somewhere. But uh, at the uh, moment, the Democrats and Republicans both are upset with Como and uh, railing back against him. Uh, so I think we have a good chance at uh, maybe getting an impeachment at this particular time. Mm. But Democrats are, as someone on my program said yesterday, there is no never Biden movement within the Democratic Party. Democrats seem to be pretty loyal to each other. How are you going to get some Democrats on board? Well, it seems to be that way on the surface. If you peel the cover back, there are plenty out there that's not loyal to uh uh, to their, uh, their current administration or the uh, Como administration. I spoke to several uh, Democrats and liberals, and they are just as upset as Republicans are with the uh, current situation. So it's a way around it. Uh, it may look like uh, it's not a chance, but it's a great chance uh, this, this thing is going to be pulled on, off and it's going to happen. Mm. Well, and there was a very damning report by State Attorney General Letitia James finding that the Cuomo administration undercounted the nursing home death toll by more than 50 percent. And people are furious about this. What are you hearing from people as you're doing your campaign in New York? What did they say about what he did with the nursing homes? Yeah, they are very upset about what he did and not coming out uh, in the open and saying, uh, like my suggestion said all along, come out and just be open. Uh, if uh, this amount of people uh, died from your director, then so be it and apologize. Take uh, uh, 
take that up on yourself and say I made a mistake instead of hiding it, uh, keeping it hid away from the public, not apologizing to the family. It's a total disaster for him. And uh, at this point, uh, Como needs to step down, not just because I'm running for governor, but he needs to step down. He's shown he's not a leader. He has absolutely no compassion for anyone but himself. So I would call for Como to step down. And I'm hearing that from uh, across the board from my constituents. Well, and the New York Post editorial board had an editorial. We'll put the headline up. They are calling for Cuomo to stop treating the city of New York differently from the rest of the state. Uh, they're calling it Cuomo's 25% rule. So he's putting restrictions and he's saying that the city, the restaurants can only open 25% capacity in New York City, but the rest of the state can open at 50% capacity. And they're limiting the restaurant hours. As the editorial board says, it's not like COVID is more transmissible after 11 p.m. They say this is absurd and tyrannical as the governor's earlier rule that bars patrons had to buy a meal too. So they're saying that this rule of treating the city differently from the rest of the state, it just doesn't make sense. What do you think? Well, it absolutely don't make sense. I can understand there's more people in the cities. Uh, I think it's about 9 million, maybe 10 million as uh, in the city itself. So I assume you're looking from that point of view. But if you go through all the data and uh, look at everything, the uh, entire state should be treated the same. Uh, in my opinion, the entire state should be open up and we should follow uh, CDC guidelines and more to keep ourselves safe. But uh, at this point, only thing I see is a tactic to uh, kill small business. I think that's just the uh, uh, the full uh, backing behind it. Some of them is not going to be able to come back. 30% of them have gone out of business and I know they won't be able to come back. And the small business employs a lot of our uh, our community people, you know, they are the backbone of our neighborhood. So we need to open up fully and let these businesses come back and prosper again. All right, Derek Gibson, thank you so much. Thank you. And I want to move to viewer feedback. I love to get our viewer feedback. I'm going to put some tweets up from my question that I put up yesterday. I'm at Carrie Sheffield. And I said yesterday, what do you want to see at CPAC this year? I had husband and wife team, Matt Schlapp and Mercedes Schlapp, to give us a preview. And Mark My Words wrote back and said, Catherine Limbaugh, that's Russia's wife, that's who should take up the mantle. Mark my words, we'll see. We're marking your words right here on this show. Jane, Jane Banks says, President Trump for keynote speaker. That's who Jane wants to see over at CPAC. And then Jay Kent Tolbert says, how about what I don't want to see? Establishment Republicans and never Trumpers. Only people working for the American people and not their own egos. That's a really interesting point, Jay Kent Tolbert. Uh, as just mentioned on my program yesterday, had a Republican activist talking about how Democrats they don't have a never Biden movement. They don't have a never Biden movement that's out there raising millions of dollars and putting campaign ads the way the Lincoln project was doing this against the Republican. Uh, so it was a group of Republicans fighting against the Republican. Uh, very interesting, Jay Kent Tolbert. We'll see what the programming comes up with at CPAC. I'll wait, we'll, we'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're with us. Well, there's a phrase that feminists love to use, and that is dismantle the patriarchy. Well, we've seen the patriarchy get dismantled in many communities, and it's had a devastating impact on our society. And joining me to discuss this is Dr. Warren Farrell. He's the best-selling author of The Myth of Male Power and his latest book, The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Looking forward to talking with you. So tell us about your book. Why did you write it? What's the biggest takeaway? Well, I was speaking, you know, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, and I was speaking all Wait, over the world. Hang on, hang Just so our viewers know, the National Organization of Women, very liberal feminist group. I very, was liberal. Very, very Trump-hating group, and you were on the board I, of this. All right. I was, uh, Proceed. I was liberal. I was literally on the board of the National Organization for Women in New York City. This is back in the 70s when I was young and didn't know very much. But, and I was speaking all around the world on, on the importance of feminism. And women, teachers usually, would come up to me and, um, and say, you know, in my classroom, the boys are having more problems than the girls. My, my sister was a teacher. And so I started talking with her about this. And she said, I'll start looking into this. And she said, you know, it was. It's oftentimes that, you know, this boy. Something has really happened. He started declining, and he used to be very motivated. Now he's not motivated. He's now talking back. Uh, what's the issue? And she started looking into his life, and he was. Uh, and his parents had just divorced, and the father was not around. And then this pattern repeated itself. So I started to become attuned into this, and then I f found out that in the when I started doing the research for the boy crisis, I initially um, presented to my publisher 10 causes of the boy crisis that I, identif I had identified. But in fact, there was uh, every, every time I had one cause identified, it was fairly important, but it was only important if there was not a father in the family. So for example, when a boy was brought up in a single mom home, and then he went to an almost all female school, that really led him to be very um, without sort of a role model for men. And he then became attracted to gang leaders as part of family and uh, a male role model or drug dealers um, or some other destructive, you know, or ISIS recruits. And so I started looking into that and I saw that 85 to 90 percent of the mass shooters had two things in common. They were male and they were also dad deprived started looking into the prison population. I ran for governor of California, um, spoke to many prison populations and saw that they were almost all um, male and dad deprived. And start, I started piecing the pieces together. And so uh, I went to the feminist board, board of now in New York City and I said, you know, something's happening here. Um, there's, there's dad deprivation is an important thing. And the response I got was total silence, like, are you on our side or not? And I said, I hope we're all on the side of children. Uh, we want those, are, that's girl children and boy children that seem to be doing a lot better. So Warren, uh, were, you, were you at that point kicked off? They say, we uh, don't want you on our board anymore? It was a bit more subtle than that. You probably know a lot about body language. Passive-aggressive? <laughs> Passive-aggressive. It was like, you know, Warren, this was this was in the you know now in the late uh, it's mid seventies, and they said, um, you know, you you admit yourself that the research is only in its uh, infancy stage. We don't have really good longitudinal data. 
So Warren, why don't you go out and sort of look a bit more carefully and see if you really want to come up with this conclusion that fathers are so important. So I said, what's the problem? Why are you so resistant to the fathers being so important? And they said, because our now members are saying that if they get a divorce, they want the option to be, they feel they know what's best for the children. They want the option to be able to move away out of state to the different boyfriend and forget the mistakes of the past. And then I said, what else is going on? And they said, well, there's a lot of women now who want to have children by themselves without being married. And so I, I said, so you're saying that um, that that the marriage is, is um, not important? And they said, well, we want them to be able to have the choice of doing that. Um, so when when a woman um, is is has children, you don't ca you care more about her right to do do the children the way she wants than you care about the way the children are growing up, and it was like silence. And I could see. And then you know the the, the most direct comment was you know you're making a great deal of money uh, speaking around the world on behalf of women's issues, and who do you think recommends you all the time? And so I knew that I had a choice to make, that I could either um, do the research for the boy crisis in a way that led to as, as honest a set of conclusions as I could come to. When I did that, I found that father involvement was not only important, but it was important for girls as well as boys, and it was important uh, for, on more than 50 developmental areas. Um, and I started looking into, you know, what is there about father involvement that really is so important? And I started seeing that dad's, dad's style and mom's style are very different. Dads are far more likely to roughhouse. Moms are far more likely to say, uh, you know, be careful. You know, somebody's going to end up crying. Somebody's going to end up hurt here. Don't, don't go too far. And But I never heard a dad say to mom, do you know that when we roughhouse with children, we teach them how to be able to be assertive versus aggressive. We teach them how to think of their brothers and sisters' needs. No, dads knew that. So I realized that I had to differentiate in, in the Boy Crisis book between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting. I also couldn't blame moms because moms can't hear what dads don't say. Dads mm -hmm. weren't saying what they what they were doing that was contributing uh, so much to the family. And I ended up realizing that the children that did the best are ones that have what I call checks and balance parenting, mm -hmm. where there's Yep. There's balance, the masculine and feminine together. Uh, yeah. Warren Farrell, your book is so important. Our culture needs it. Thank you so much for writing this book. I wish you all the best on this book, and I wish the best on our culture. We got to get fathers back in the home. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be right back with some video. If you missed it, yesterday we landed on Mars. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Skycam maneuver has started. About 20 meters off the surface. We're getting signals from MRO. UHF is good. Touchdown confirmed. Yep. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life.
this point, the Bethesda stage has flown away to a safe distance. Perseverance is continuing to transmit direct through Marvacon's orbiter to Earth. And that is some footage, a very exciting day yesterday afternoon at 3.55 p.m. The Mars rover Perseverance landed on the surface of Mars. What a historic day, some great news in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a winter storm, shutting down millions of people. Uh, this is just nice story here. I wanna put some tweets up here and you should follow them on Twitter. NASA's Perseverance Mars rover has his, her, its own Twitter account. And it says, I am safe on Mars. Perseverance will get you anywhere. I love a good pun, don't you? Here's some looks at the actual crater landing itself. It was the Jezero Crater. And this crater used to be home to a prehistoric lake. Very exciting stuff. And that does it for us. We will see you tomorrow here on Just the News AM next week.